We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork. In the, in the law, what's the difference between must and may? Good. Must is required and may is permissible, right? So you can do it. It's optional. That those terminologies are relevant to the portion of our Torah that we're going to be uh, reading from this morning. We're reading Parashat Bechukotai, uh, and we're focusing on the latter portion of Parashat Bechukotai. Typically, this Shabbat would be a double portion, Bahar Bechukotai. Uh, we're focusing on Bechukotai, uh, and most of Bechukotai deals with what's called Tochecha, uh, rebuke. So it begins by saying, here are all the lovely things that will happen to you if you do observe the commandments, and here are all the really horrific things that are going to happen to you if you don't observe the commandments. That's the bulk of the Torah portion, but we actually, in our triennial reading, don't read any of that. We focus on the latter part of the portion, which deals with an issue uh, known in uh, rabbinic terminology, terminology as arachim which means valuations. It works like this. If you, uh, if you promise something to God, you make a vow to God, uh, and you promise something uh, uh, that you're going to give it to, that you're going to give it to God, which means functionally in the ancient times that you would give it to the temple as a, as a gift to the temple, as a donation to the temple, right? So think about it in terms of donations. If you say, you know, I, uh, I promise to give this dollar to tzedakah, Right? Then you have to give that dollar to Tzedakah. You can't say later, oh, but I'd rather buy a Coke with that dollar. You have to give that dollar to Tzedakah. So the same thing happened according to the Torah in ancient times. If you said, I'm going to give my cow to the temple, you had to give the cow to the temple. What you could do if you decide later that even though you promised to give the cow, you don't want to give the cow, you could give the value of the cow to the temple. Right? So let's say the cow is worth, you know, uh, I don't know, a goat is two zuzim, so maybe a cow is, is, is a hundred zuzim, right? Uh, and so you would give a hundred zuzim to the temple, right? And that would be, uh, that would be your gift. And the, and the priests are the ones, according to our Torah portion, who get the, who get to, uh, evaluate, uh, various things, who get to determine their value. You could do that. So in modern terms, you could say, okay, I want to give this dollar, I promise to give this dollar to Tzedakah, and then you decide later, well, but I actually kind of, I wanted to use this dollar at the dollar store, but I'll give another dollar to Tzedakah, right? Uh, you, could, you could, I think, do that. You may do that. You may promise a cow to the temple and then substitute its value if you decide to for something else. But the beginning of the portion talks about something quite different. Please, come on in, come on in. The beginning of the portion talks about something different. It says, more God spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Ish ki neder, nefashot 
A person that makes a vow, that offers up a vow, uh, must give the value of his person to God. So this is a case in which a person says, I'm going to dedicate myself to the temple. My human being self to the temple. I'm going to dedicate myself to God. Or a person might say, I'm going to dedicate my wife to the temple. And or or a person might say, I'm gonna dedicate my son or my daughter to the temple. People apparently used to do that sort of thing in ancient times. And perhaps in many societies, that promise had to be fulfilled. You could give or you must give the human being that you promised for God to the temple or to God. Sometimes maybe even as a sacrifice in ancient times. But the Torah says something different. And this is why I prefaced it with the difference between may and must. In the case of an animal, a house, an object, some money, your field, produce, you may give that thing that you promised to God or you may give its value. When it comes to human beings, however, you have to give the value of the human being. You cannot actually give the human being to the temple. You cannot actually give over your son or your daughter or your wife or yourself to God as an offering, as a sacrifice. You have to give the value. Now, it's tricky because, as David pointed out, you're right. Different people have different values in this text. And it's complicated and troubling and challenging to say that any person could be evaluated monetarily. That is true. Those are troubling aspects of this text. But fundamentally, what it is saying is that a human being, whether a man or a woman, whether old or young, whether a son or daughter, actually has infinite value. Which is why you cannot actually give that human being to the temple. You cannot actually give that human being to the temple. You have to substitute it for some kind of monetary compensation. You have to substitute him or her for some kind of monetary compensation. Because in the Jewish tradition, a human life has infinite worth cannot be replaced. So in the Mishnah, there's a famous articulation of this. The tractate is called Sanhedrin, which deals with uh, how to constitute courts and prepare witnesses in all kinds of cases. And in chapter 4 of Sanhedrin, there is a famous passage which talks about how we adjure witnesses in capital cases. Uh, the Torah has a death penalty in many uh, instances for many kinds of crimes. Uh, that This is not a sermon on the death penalty. That's another sermon for another time. But the Torah does believe that some crimes are, are worthy of death. But the rabbis treat this very, very seriously, so much so that according to rabbinic tradition, 
uh, it's possible that no person was ever put to death in a rabbinic court based on the Torah. And one of the reasons for that is that the burden of testimony that the rabbis put on witnesses was incredibly high. Right? You couldn't just claim to be an eyewitness and have your testimony believed. You had to, you had to give your testimony independently of another eyewitness. The eyewitnesses, by the way, couldn't just be bystanders along the side. They had to be people who uh, could speak to the person committing the act. So let's say we're talking about murder. They could speak to the person committing the act and say, hey, you know that you're murdering someone right now, right? And the person would have to say, yes, I know that. And then they would have to say, you know that murdering someone is against the Torah, right? And the person would have to say, yes, I know that murdering someone is against the Torah. And they say, you know that the punishment for violating that mitzvah is, uh, is death. You know that, right? And the person who says, yes, I know that, but I'm going to do it anyway. and does it anyway. That's the standard that has to be met for a witness to be eligible to testify against a person in a capital case. And then there have all sorts of uh, ways of trying to ensure that witnesses give uh, uh, reliable testimony. They ask them, you know, what color shirt per a person was wearing, well, what color the leaves were on the tree nearby them, all sorts of things designed to ensure that the testimony is reliable testimony, but also uh, to uh, to make sure that anything that even gives a sliver of the doubt, right? We use in our court system the, the uh, a reasonable doubt. This in some ways is like totally unreasonable doubt. Even if there's a totally unreasonable doubt that a person might, uh, might be wrongfully accused of a crime, that person should be exonerated according to rabbinic jurisprudence. And so they, and what would happen is if a witness gives false testimony such that a, an innocent person is put to death, that witness is held accountable, is held liable for the death of an innocent person. So the rabbis say, how do we adjure witnesses in, uh, in, uh, in capital cases? They say, maybe you heard, uh, maybe you heard, they, so they bring them into the, to the court and they make them swear. Did you, you know, say this uh, um, uh, uh, from uh, rumor uh, or from hearsay uh, or from another witness? Uh, maybe you didn't see it as an eyewitness. Um, uh, and you should know if anything is wrong with your testimony that capital cases are not like monetary cases. In monetary cases, a person can, who gives false testimony can give money and uh, atone for the crime of the false testimony that they've given. So, right, if I'm a witness in a monetary case and uh, then and I give false testimony and someone has to give you know, a thousand dollars in uh, in the uh, as punishment, and I and it's discovered that I had given false testimony. Okay, I can make up for it by giving a thousand dollars back to that person. But capital cases aren't like that, according to the rabbis. His blood and the blood of his descendants depend on him to the end of the world. This is what we found with Cain, who killed his brother Abel, who says that the bloods of your brother call out. It doesn't say the blood of your brother. Rather, the bloods of your brother. Not only his blood, but the blood of his descendants. 
Another another way of interpreting it, the bloods of your brother. That his blood was splattered on the trees and the stones. That's why the rabbis say, That's why one human being was created at the beginning of the world. Alone. To teach you. Anybody who kills one person, Scripture holds them accountable as if they had killed an entire world. Anybody who saves one life, it is as if he had saved an entire world. That is how the rabbis adjure witnesses in capital cases to make sure that they don't inadvertently or intentionally put an innocent person to death. Because one life is tantamount to an entire world. One human being has infinite value. One life cannot be measured. Before Shabbat began last night, we were witness to yet another mass shooting. This time, very close to home, in Virginia Beach, where 12 innocent people were taken from this world. And just a few days after, here in Richmond, this beautiful girl was playing in a park and was shot to death. It seems to me that there is a problem in our country where the value of human life is not treated as ultimate. Where leaders see other values and possibly even other monetary figures as more worthy and more valuable than each individual human life. Sure, there is lots of lip service given to the lives of unborn children. And there is lots of lip service given to the lives of Americans who may be a threat of terrorist attack. But in the most basic sense of our day-to-day lives, whether we go to work in a municipal building or send our kids to a public school or go to a shopping mall or go to a concert, we are left fundamentally unprotected and vulnerable, vulnerable because our leaders and ultimately because we don't sufficiently advocate for the protection and the prominence and the predominance of the value of human life. There's a phrase that repeats throughout the Tochacha section of the parasha about why God sends these terrible calamities for, uh, for people who don't observe the commandments. And the phrase is, if you deal with me, God says, carry with coldness, with aloofness, 
with a blasé attitude, then all of these calamities will befall you. And it seems to me that the same might be said of a society that treats the sanctity and dignity and value of human life precarity, with a blasé attitude, with a cool and aloof attitude, that our freedom, our right to bear arms matters more than the protection of human life. That an A-plus rating from the NRA, <clears throat> with all of its energy and votes, matters more than the value of a human life. And we can see the curse of living in a society, the anxiety of living in a society in which we and the leaders who represent us walk through this world, lead ourselves, lead our country bekeri, with coolness, with aloofness. The Chukotai offers a warning. It's hinted at in Arachin, in this section dealing with the value of things that we sanctify. And it's stated explicitly, in a sense, in the Tochecha, that only those who are truly burning with passion about the worth and sanctity of each individual life, only those who are not prepared to give over any individual to a fate that they would not take for themselves, will merit to live in the spirit of the beginning of the Parsha, where you will lie down and no one will terrify you, when the land will be rid of vicious beasts and you will not again know fear of violence, when peace will be brought to the land and each and every person will be able to dwell underneath their vine and their fig tree with none to harass them. May we merit to build that kind of society. May we merit to build that kind of world filled with a sense of the infinite worth and value of each and every human life. 